welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, and today we are joined by Trevor Lane, senior writer and host for LakersNation.com. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. Well, absolutely. Really excited to talk a little bit about LeBron James, Anthony Davis, their first round matchup here. Uh, with the Portland Trailblazers. But as always, before we get into the basketball talk, we'll start with you, Trevor. So for our listeners here, how about you just kind of take us through your journey in sports media from when you first kind of realized that writing about basketball, writing about sports was something that you wanted to do and how you ended up where you are for Lakers Nation? Oh, man. Uh, well, so I I initially set out when I got out of college and, and everything that I set out to to be a teacher. And that is, uh, is what I did for, for 13 years. I, I taught uh, history at the, the junior high level, and that was my job. But I also knew that as a, a teacher, I, I probably wasn't going to make very much money, and I would need something on the side to, to supplement my, my income. And I, I, I love writing. And so initially I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm gonna, I'll write novels. I'll, I'll do that. And come to find out, it's really, really difficult to write a novel when you're spending all of your time on basketball. And so I would, uh, I would be in the middle of something and I could never make very much progress on it. And I had these great ideas and, and all these characters and all sorts of things, but I was spending so much of my time uh, reading about Lakers rumors and who they could trade for and, and all of this. I grew up a, a Lakers fan. My earliest memory as a kid is of watching a Lakers game. Um, and, and so that just, that made it to where I eventually hit a point where I just thought, you know, I got to write what I love and that's, Lakers basketball. And so, uh, so I started up my own blog just to see, you know, is this something I can do consistently and stick with it before I even want to approach any sites or anybody or anybody about writing for them. And so I did that for, I believe it was about six or seven months. And, and once I felt like I'd really kind of found my voice or at least started to, um, I approached a few different sites. I got picked up by one. And then from there I got noticed by, by Lakers nation and, um, and I'm doing all this while, while I'm still teaching. Um, yeah. And I was brought in to write one editorial a week for, for Lakers Nation. And that grew over time. And eventually I was handling some news stories in addition to that. And then um, they didn't have a podcast going. And so I just said, let me run with it and, and let me do it. I'll do all the work. You guys don't have to worry about anything. Just give me the, the platform to put it out on and, and let me do it. And so the Lakers Nation podcast has now been going for, gosh, it's been almost four years now. And then I started taking over uh, the YouTube channel and doing videos for them and just, which was a natural transition to just start filming some of our podcasts and, and doing that and putting that out there. And so that's, that's been great. And then just uh, last week, I uh, actually resigned from my teaching job and, and decided to go full-time into, into basketball and sports media. And so it's a, it's a big jump for me, but it's also really, really exciting. And I feel incredibly fortunate to get to do this as, as my career now. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, welcome to the full-time ranks. We are very happy to have you here. Uh, that's, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the, that, that's how you, that's how you get into the business nowadays is this, all the blogging stuff. And so that's what really stood out to me initially about your journey here. Take us through the process of making your own blog. I know you said that you wanted to do it because you wanted to kind of get some material out there and see if you could really write about basketball as like a, at least a part-time gig at the time. But as far as the actual making of the blog goes, what kind of thought went into that and how much trouble did you have with the process of getting it started and getting the content up? 
Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, I really was just using it as kind of a proving ground just to myself to kind of see, you know, I put it out there, but nobody really read it or anything like that. I think at that point I had, I, I, I don't even know if I had a hundred followers on Twitter at that, at that point, it was, it was nothing. So, um, so I put, I put some time into designing and building it and stuff like that, but it's so easy these days. You know, I just used Blogspot at the time and, um, and I put it all together. It was, it was more just, can I write consistently about Lakers basketball or is this going to lose my interest? Is this going to ruin my love for the game? If I try to turn this into something more serious, then I'm just a fan. If I want to really dig into the analysis, is that something that I'm going to stick with? And so fortunately over time, as I, as I did that, um, you know, the blog didn't get anybody reading it or anything. It was, but it was more an opportunity for me to kind of put myself out there or at least begin to and sort of dip my toe in the water and see if it was something that I would, that I could really commit to. And once, once I had done that and I saw that, okay, this is something that I, I really enjoy doing. It's something that I was just doing more and more and more. I thought, okay, it's time to, you know, take this to the next step and see if I can find a, a bigger audience by getting out with a, with a bigger, a bigger site. Mm-hmm. And how did that first step kind of go for you? What was the first site that you ended up getting some traction with? So I was actually with uh, with Silver Screen, uh, Silver Screen and Rolls, and mm-hmm. uh, and that was a, a great experience. I was working alongside uh, Harrison Fagan and I, um, who's a, a friend of mine. We uh, he came in right about the same time as I did. Uh, he beat me uh, by a few months, I believe, with Silver Screen. And so he and I were working together a lot. And um, and he was a, a journalism major. That was what he that's what he's getting his or got his degree in. And mm-hmm. so that was great for me because I was a, I was a history major through college. So I knew how to craft an argument, but the journalism side of things was very was very foreign to me. So I learned a lot alongside him, kind of picking up on the the nuance of it. And mm-hmm. um, and I was only there for about five months or so before before Lakers Nation came calling, and then um, I went and started to get get paid. And initially, I was uh, I was doing it all for free just because I just wanted the experience. And then once I had started to kind of get my feet wet, then I thought, okay, you know, maybe I can. I started to make something out of this. Definitely. And then at what point did you, like, what, what, what exactly was the point, or if there was a precise point that you can remember, where you realized that, while I assume you still love teaching and that was really, you know, something you enjoyed doing, that doing writing about basketball as a full-time gig was something that you really wanted? Yeah, that was uh, within the last, well, the last probably two years here, where, um, it was more, you know, news would break and I'd be in the middle of a class and I'd be frustrated that I couldn't jump on that, that story, that I couldn't, I couldn't do anything with that. Um, so that was, that was when I started to realize, you know, that was, that was more my passion. I was spending my summer breaks and things like that, doing a lot of, uh, a lot of Lakers basketball and covering, uh, covering basketball. Um, I, I never made the, the jump. I didn't think that I was going to make the jump quite as soon as I did. But with everything going on with um, with COVID and all of that, and whether or not it's safe to be back in a classroom, and all these sorts of things, and there were a variety of issues. Um, that's all of that kind of came together. The the feeling that I'd been having, where more and more I was wanting to be just doing the basketball thing, I, you know, it ultimately came down to uh, I decided I was going to bet on myself and thought, you know, I, I have to give this a shot and, and go and see what I can really make of this because. I've kind of been compared to most people in the industry. I've kind of been doing this with one arm tied behind my back because from eight o'clock until six o'clock, 
I've been completely unavailable to do anything. And then I'm just burning the midnight oil and working basketball um, all night, you know, into to one, 2 AM. And I thought if I can fully commit and focus myself entirely on, on basketball, how far can I, can I take that? And so that's, that's the, the exciting part of all of this for me. But, um, but of course, you know, I'm going to miss my students and colleagues and, and all that sort of stuff that, uh, that I had to leave uh, behind in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, betting on yourself, that's really what you got to do. As Shay Serrano is fond of saying, I actually interviewed Shay. He's another former teacher turned writer that I'm sure you've heard of. And he had some interesting things yep. to say about kind of the, the translation between the skills that are required to be a good teacher and the skills that are required to be a good writer. So now that you have made this full, you've been working, you, as you said, you were working with one arm tied behind your back and you were kind of doing both for a long time. Do you feel that there are some translatable skills there? Absolutely. 100%. And it, and it surprised me. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't go into this thinking, gosh, you know, all of these little things that I've learned as a teacher are going to translate to the sports world. Like I, I never would have, would have made that connection. But then as I got into it, it's, it's very, very similar in a lot of ways. I'm, I still really am teaching. I'm just doing it about basketball and we're having a discourse and a conversation back and forth with, with so many fans. So um, and that's because a lot of my stuff now is, is audio and video, but then even in, in my writing, I'm going over a topic. We're explaining, okay, you know, this is where the Lakers office is struggling, or this is where they're really doing well. And this is why. And, and, um, and so I try to be as informative as possible. And that obviously is going to have a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, connections with, with teaching and the strategies that I would use there. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, hearing you talk about it, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I feel like I need to ask anyway. Has doing this as a job at all sort of, you know, edged away your fandom for the game of basketball and Lakers? Oh, no, no, not at all. If anything, it's only it's only grown. I always joke with uh, with Alan Sliwa from, uh, from ESPN. Whenever he and I get together, we always talk about how we could talk Lakers basketball all day and be and be totally happy, and that's why we have the job that – that we do um it's just it's so much fun to talk sports all day and get to do this uh so no it hasn't taken away from it at all that was one of my concerns early on and one of the reasons why i first just started a blog i thought okay you know if i try to make my analysis more professional and take it to the next level and take you know maybe some of these skills that i've that i've learned through through teaching and everything and apply that is that going to take away from how much i'm enjoying watching the games and, and fortunately the answer has been no i'm still just as passionate i'm still sitting on the edge of my seat and uh yeah and, and i'm just loving it yeah sure sure sounds like it trevor and you're actually it's a, it's interesting i i don't really get the opportunity to interview a lot of guys who are in your position who just recently made this move into a full-time gig so now that you're on the precipice of launching into your first playoffs and your first full year as a full-time basketball writer what are are there any challenges that you're particularly looking forward to overcoming in the next six months? Yeah, you know, I, I'm definitely looking forward to just just the amount of content that I can put out. You know, one of the, it made me feel real good for sure. When I, when I announced um, that I was going full time, there were a lot of people that, that said, what do you mean? Like they thought I, I already was full time. And, uh, and this is what I did. And this was my job. I didn't publicize it that, Hey, I'm also a, a teacher because I tried to keep the two things as as separate as possible, even though some of my kids did, my students did find my Twitter account and all that. And they all, oh, you know, you know this, is, this guy, Mr. Lane is famous because he's got a blue check mark or something. But, um, 
but I try to keep them separate. But uh, but I think it's just coming up with the content. Like the expectation now is okay. I've already been putting out quite a bit of content when I was doing this part time, and I'm doing it at you know 1 a.m. and and all of that kind of stuff. So what I think the expectation is that it the quality and the quantity is going to go up now that I'm doing this full time. And so rising to that challenge is certainly something that I'm, that I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And I, you will not have a lack of content given the sheer quantity of basketball that we're going to be watching over the next 12 months, even if the Lakers aren't necessarily in it until before Halloween. But uh, one of the other questions I had was, um, so you, from the sounds of it, you decided to do this and then you did it. And so as far as Laker Nation goes, was that offer to become a full-time guy kind of always on the table or did it just happen to line up right when you were make, thinking about making that jump? You know, it did. It was something where I hadn't really pushed for it. I hadn't really pushed for it um, for a variety of reasons, but most of all, I just, I just wasn't quite ready to step away from the classroom yet. And so when I, I started talking to the owner of, of Lakers Nation and said, and just kind of broached the subject, uh, and he was he was all for it and and excited to do it. Um, I I'll admit I went back and forth a little bit, and at one point I actually turned it down and said, "No, I'm going to spend one more year teaching." But then, um, as COVID concerns grew and everything, and um, concerns with with that had to had to be a big factor. And I was looking at how quickly they were going to put kids back in classrooms. I was like, you know. Yeah. This isn't going to sit well with me if I feel like I'm putting my family in danger. Um, and this is something that I was pretty dipped at on. Okay, I'm going to be doing this a year from now anyway. Why not just just do this now and and make the leap? And so fortunately, Lakers Nation was uh, was accommodating with that, and, and they were excited to bring me on full time. And um, and I, I was thrilled too. So it's a big step, but but I you know I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh... Sometimes things just line up like that, and it seems like it worked out really great for you. What initially brought you to Laker Nation? Um, so initially, it's just so with Lakers Nation, their their platform is is enormous. They have three million followers on on Facebook. Uh, I think they have like six hundred thousand on Twitter, three hundred thousand on on YouTube, another I don't know three or four hundred thousand on on Instagram. It is a giant, giant, giant community of, of Lakers fans. And so just as initially a writer, as somebody who, okay, I want to get my work out in front of as many people as possible. This was, you know, an amazing opportunity. Um, but then I just love that we try to represent the fan base as, as best we can. And we try mm -hmm. to represent that side of things. I always say on my shows that we, you know, we present basketball news, but we do it through purple and gold lenses. So we look at it through the perspective of the Lakers. What does this mean for them? And since that's already kind of how I'm wired because I grew up on the Lakers, this is just, this has just been an absolutely perfect fit for me. And, and I think for them as well. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it, you know, happy marriage so far one weekend, like uh, excited to see where you go with it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I think that you're going to kill it, Trevor. Now moving on to talking some Lakers. Oh boy. So, last night was not the best night for Los Angeles fans, I would say. Well, some Los Angeles fans, it was a great night, but for most Los Angeles fans, from my understanding of the dissension of the fan base there, it was not such a great night. So, just tell me, tell us, what went wrong here? 
I mean, really? And, and we were talking all about this in our post-game show afterwards. It really just came down to one thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the shooting. And yeah. to me, most games were breaking down a mul- you know, multiple factors and this is what they need to do or this went well, this didn't. And, you know, these five things were things that they, that they need to work on. In this game, it really was just one thing. The defense was fine. I wasn't, it wasn't uh, the offensive execution. I thought that was fine. They just flat out missed shots. They shot uh, 15.6% from behind the arc, which did not get it down at all. They were great on the offensive glass with 17 offensive boards, but that's, you know, maybe to be expected when you miss that much. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to win an NBA game, let alone a playoff game when you're hitting less than 16% of your three-point looks. So that's really what it came down to, was just missing shots. So your suggested game two adjustment would be to make those shots? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, so the reason why they got so many open looks is because the Blazers saw that the Lakers had struggled a little bit um, shooting in the bubble. And so they thought, okay, if these, these problems might continue – and so they decided they were going to pack the paint and make the Lakers prove that they could hit outside shots. And that's what they did. And that's why we saw lineups featuring both Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside at the same time, which, I mean, in this day and age, in 2020, it's very rare for you to see a Twin Towers lineup out there. Um, it's not like the old school Houston Rockets or, or anything like that. When you had, um, we had Moses Malone out there and, uh, or no, sorry, Ralph Sampson and the uh, Kim Olajuwon out there. So that wasn't a thing that was happening. Um, but, the Lakers, for their part, they took the shots that were being given to them, which was the deep looks, but that doesn't mean they were making them. Um, they were, you know, Danny Green was two for eight. KCP, Contavious Colwell Pope was 0 for five. LeBron was one for five. Anthony Davis was 0 for five. Um, they took open shots, but those were the shots the Blazers gave them and kind of dared them to, to knock those down, and they just they couldn't do it. Yeah, and I mean, I think we can – even with the Lakers shooting struggles in the bubble, I think we can pretty safely assume that they aren't going to shoot 15% again. Or, I mean, they might, but it's not going to happen every single game. And so looking at the broader scope of these adjustments, like you were talking about, they had the Twin Towers lineup out there. And that was in part because the Lakers were trotting out. They gave Dwight Howard a lot of minutes, and they gave JaVale a lot of minutes next to Anthony Davis. And for an observer like me who has not watched every single Lakers game this season but has watched enough Lakers games to kind of get the get the vibe, it seems like Anthony Davis at the five fixes a lot of their problems. I know he doesn't want to play the five, and nobody wants to grind him out too much down low, but when it's a playoff game, and if you're missing this many shots, basic common sense would suggest that the more shooters you have out there, the more likely it is that they're going, somebody's going to make one, even if it ends up being Markeith Morris playing the four or a small ball five in case Anthony Davis doesn't want to play the five traditionally. So in your view, do you think the Lakers go to that? Or are they going to stick with playing AD next to JaVale and Dwight for a lot of this series? No, I think they're going to have to. And I think that's something that we were going to have to see depending on the matchups. Um, you know, like if they, if they were to meet the Houston Rockets, say in round two, if they get there, uh, you're, you almost can't play your traditional bigs because the Rockets go, you know, six, seven and under <laughs> players. Um, so there was, that was, I, I think coming no matter what, but yeah, your point stands that if the Lakers can't find anybody who can knock down shots, they're going to have to figure out a way to space the floor and create some looks for guys who, who can knock them down. And that might mean Anthony Davis playing at the five. The one thing that kind of kept them alive in this game was their battling on the offensive boards. And a lot of that was JaVale McGee and a lot of it was Dwight Howard 
uh, that mm-hmm. you know, when they missed, those guys were at the very least tipping the ball and keeping it alive and giving them second chance opportunities. So that's something that you would be giving up if you were to go small, at least to, to some degree you would. And Anthony Davis doesn't like playing the five. That's what we heard from, from day one. He would rather be a four. But if you're going to be a four, you have to be able to knock down the outside shots in the modern NBA. That has to happen. And if he's not hitting them, then you kind of have to slide him back into that five spot and then have somebody else jump in and, and you go a little bit smaller. I would be surprised if we didn't see more of that from the Lakers in game two. I think that's probably an adjustment that Frank Vogel is going to have to turn to. And AD is just going to have to do it, whether or not he's, he's thrilled about it. Uh, it's the playoffs. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think Anthony Davis will be happy to do it if it means wins because he's done a lot in his career, but win a lot of playoff games is not one of them. But we've talked a lot about Anthony Davis, haven't really touched upon the king, LeBron James. He posted a ridiculous stat line last night. It was absolutely preposterous. Can't even imagine what his assist numbers would have looked like if the guys were actually hitting the shots that he was placing in the breadbasket for them. But some, and I wouldn't say it's legitimate, I, I don't know how much I back this point, but there is kind of this idea that if the Lakers are going to win this series, LeBron needs to be a scorer more than a distributor, which is something that I feel like we've heard a million times about LeBron James, and he still wins anyway. But do you anticipate seeing a more aggressive LeBron James in terms of his actual point total when as the series goes on? Yeah, I wouldn't. I would expect it just because now the pressure is on, right? I mean, you can't go down 0-2 in a series. So I would be surprised if we didn't see a hyper aggressive LeBron James in terms of getting his own scoring going. And you're right. He had 16 assists in this game and that's with the Lakers shooting less than 16% from, from three. So you can only imagine what that would have been had they actually been knocking down shots. Um, I, I do think that if the team gets rolling, then he'll go back to passing because that's kind of how LeBron is wired, right? I mean, we talk about guys like, you know, like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, who are more score first players. That's their, that's their mentality. And you see a number of players around the league, uh, like, like for example, even on the Lakers, Dion waiters, right. Is a guy who he can pass a little bit, but his base skill set is to put the ball in the basket is to score. And that's usually what we expect out of our superstar level players, but that's not really ever been LeBron's default. He's more wired along the lines of say a magic Johnson, where he wants to get out there and make the make the pass that's going to lead to the bucket, and he's totally fine with that. He just he has to score because well that's what he because he's so good and and so his teams need him to do that. So I think if we start to see the team feel comfortable with knocking down shots and we see them start falling again, we'll see LeBron continue to pass. But otherwise, he's going to be left with no choice but to try to figure out ways to get the ball in the basket himself. Yeah, and you're right. It's never it's. You know, LeBron has already been a great distributor and a great floor general. That's what makes him who he is rather than his ability to get buckets. And kind of the whole reason that he left Los Angeles and then got Anthony Davis there in the first place was so that he wouldn't have to be like 2017 LeBron in Cleveland, where he has to do literally everything, including score the basketball. So it makes a lot of sense. I think, as you said, you know, at some point he just has to because nobody else can. But it, LeBron's also a guy who's always had the long term in mind, and he understands that it's more. Um, sometimes it's more important to make the pass just so the guy has the confidence and that sort of thing. But um, so the other thing is Damian Lillard obviously did not have a Dame Lillard Dame time sort of game the other night, as far as what we're used to recently from the bubble. It's not like he dropped 40, 50, 60 or whatever, but he did still score 34, and it seemed like he was really cooking Danny Green or Contavious Caldwell Pope whenever they were on him. Alex Caruso, on the other hand, he's not an elite defender, but he's at least quick enough to stay with Dame and kind of he's a fight chippy guy. 
do you do you see uh, Vogel leaning on Caruso a little bit more as the series goes forward as far as guarding Dame goes, or is it still going to be a group effort? No, I think he's definitely going to have to. You know, you look at what happened in that game. Uh, Vogel, with a few minutes left, the Lakers were rolling. It looks like it looked like they were just going to put the Blazers away, and then Vogel pulled Kyle Kuzma, who had things going on the offensive end, and Alex Caruso, and he switched in KCP and Danny Green, and then suddenly everything changes. So I think that was pretty telling. I think that Caruso did the best job of the Lakers guards of, of dealing with Damian Lillard. And the thing we were saying going into this series was there's no stopping him. You're not going to stop Damian Lillard from getting points. What you want to do is try to at least make things difficult and make him shoot a poor percentage, which uh, for Lillard, you know, nine of 21 from the field, that's not, that's not bad for the shots that he's taking. Obviously that's, that's really good, but he's done worse. Like you said, he's put up more than 34 points before um, I think the one thing they are going to focus on is trying to keep him off the line you can't let him get, take 10 free throws in a game that's way too much you've got to he finds ways to get the whistles and that's hurling himself into defenders doing whatever he has to do in order to get the call uh, and the Lakers have just got to be smart about that so I think that's going to be the focal point and a lot of that will come down to Alex Caruso defending Lillard probably more so than than Contavious Caldwell Pope or Danny Green I think he's just got the best shot of at least staying in front of him Definitely. And the onus is falling on Caruso, but it wouldn't be that way if times were normal in all likelihood. The Lakers had a couple, had Avery Bradley who chose to opt out. So he's gone. And then the main discourse today, specifically, I think I saw something Skip Bayless said, unfortunately, was that uh, Rajon Rondo is going to be the savior for the Los Angeles Lakers. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but do you think that the return of Rondo could have you know, a bigger impact than perhaps we're anticipating from a guy who's been really just riding the uh, the bench and playing, you know, 15, 20 minutes a game this season? So Rondo is, is interesting within the Lakers fan base. He is super polarizing. There are people that still see him as this just maestro, this floor general that is going to do all these great things for the Lakers as this uh, defensive whiz, even though, all of the advanced metrics and everything tell you that he's, that he's not. He's, his defense has fallen off tremendously from where he was uh, during his Boston days. And so when I look at, at Rondo and I look at what the Lakers' issues are right now, the Lakers' issue, issues are, are shooting, and they haven't been able to hit shots. Rondo isn't the first guy that I would think of to come in and fix the team's shooting. I mean, that's, it's like trying to put out a fire with more fire. That's, it's not going to work. Um, so... The, the one thing that Rondo can do is deliver passes at the right time with the right pace and in the right spot. And so perhaps there's an argument that on the Lakers second unit, you put in Rondo and he's able to deliver the ball to shooters in their shooting motion. And then that's going to increase your shooting efficiency. Maybe that's the thing that, that might be, but Rondo by himself, his defense isn't at a level where you can use him on Lillard or on McCollum and expect him to guard them 94 feet all game or anything like that. He's, he's just not that guy anymore. And, uh, and on the offensive end, your only hope is that his passing is on point and that that is what opens up other shooters. But because he doesn't shoot, defenses tend to drop off of him, which can clog up a lot of the passing lanes. So We'll see. We'll see. I know Lakers fans right now are keeping their fingers crossed and hoping that playoff Rondo is still a thing. We've heard about this. We've heard about the, the myth, the legend of playoff Rondo. And so if that exists, if he really ups his game that much during the playoffs, then 
I mean, I, I think that would be a positive, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, as a uh, longtime Celtics fan, I can confirm that playoff Rondo was definitely a thing. I don't know about is definitely a thing anymore, but the one sequence in my mind that I keep running through from last night where Rondo, just his experience and his ability to pass would have come in handy is I think the Lakers were either down three or six in that final two-minute stretch there. LeBron drives and kicks it to Caruso at the elbow and then instead of pass, or sorry, at the three at the at the three point corner, and instead of passing to Danny Green in the corner, he dribbles once, then tries to dribble drive again, even though Green was wide open. And it's just Caruso. This is his first like serious play. This is, these are his first playoffs ever. It's his first high stakes basketball. He doesn't know instinctively to make that pass yet, and Rondo can. And while Danny Green, while made probably wouldn't have been that open if it was Rajon Rondo instead of Alex Caruso standing at the three point line. It's still just that that little nudge. So from that perspective, I see why Rondo could definitely help. But I mean, calling for him to come save the Lakers seems a little, I don't know, optimistic to me. Oh, yeah, it's definitely, I definitely think it's wishful thinking. Uh, can he help just be a veteran presence out there? Can he maybe steady things? Uh, sure. I, I think he does make that pass that you're talking about that Caruso missed. Uh, but the big question is, what does he give up on the other end of the floor defensively? Does that kind of wipe out whatever kind of benefit he brings to the floor? We'll see. Uh, we have seen flashes. We've seen flashes from Rondo that he can still play at a high level. Uh, the one game against OKC, he was absolutely phenomenal. That was on the road without LeBron, without Anthony Davis. And Rondo took over and, and, and really helped carry the team and win that game, as well as Kyle Kuzma. But um, I don't know. I don't know what we can expect out of him. I know, I know people are just keeping their fingers crossed and hoping that playoff Rondo somehow magically reappears. Well, it would definitely make life interesting if playoff Rondo was back in all of our lives. I can say that much because he is definitely fun to watch when he's in that mode in terms of actual effectiveness. We'll see. We will definitely see. All right, Trevor, now we'll move on to the last part of the interview here. So you're sounds like you've been an L.A. guy all your life. Curious to uh, see what you have to say about this. What's your go-to spot to eat in Los Angeles? Oh, gosh. Go-to spot to eat. There's, I mean, there's so, there's so many different options out there uh, in L.A. I don't know. I can pick just one. Um, I'm really, I'm just, this is just, this is really for me more than is everybody else. I keep like a Rolodex of all the places people recommend to me because I ask everybody this question. So if you want to give me more than one, feel free, please. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me think here. Um, gosh, you know, I, I don't have any that are really like jumping out at me off the top of my head, but there are a lot of different ones that you can go check. I, what, what, I guess what I love about, and my favorite, my favorite food above all else, is uh is mexican food and there are yep. so many different options out there you just go fall, find like the little hole in the wall places and those are usually the best and for the life of me i can't remember the name of any of them it's always just just hey we're just gonna <laughs> go to that place there and it's and it's great so so go find mexican food that's the that's the best thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's definitely worse advice for somebody looking to get good food in los angeles than find the hole in the wall mexican place i mean i don't think you can go wrong yep. really so we'll definitely keep that exactly in um, what is, and this could be from your career or it could be just your whole life. So, and as a lifelong basketball fan, you'll probably have many to choose from, but if you had to pick one, what is your favorite basketball memory? Um, so my, my favorite basketball memory, and, and you'll hate this one, um, was <laughs> actually in, in 2010, 
when uh, when the Lakers beat the Celtics in, in Game Seven, and so I grew up watching basketball. My I, that was my thing with my dad was always watching basketball, and so we would you know I'm going all the way back to turning on the radio so I we could listen to Chick Hearn and we would turn down the announcers on the TV and and all of that sort of stuff. And in fact, the first basketball game I saw, my dad took me to to go see Lakers versus Sixers, and Charles Barkley got kicked out, and this was. Way back, this was in 1987, and Charles Barkley got kicked out of the game for throwing an elbow, and and it was great. And I apparently I I cheered like crazy. But um, in 2010, the Lakers are playing the Celtics in Game Seven, and I mean, just living and dying with every single shot. And this is before I started covering this team. But if you remember that game, it was it was horrific as far as the basketball game goes. It was, it was awful. I mean, that both teams were missing tons of shots, and it was sloppy and ugly, and and all of that. And, but when it was all over, like we had been talking all game, my dad and I, about everything that was going on during the game and breaking down, oh, this, this guy needs to be doing this. And, and I can't believe he missed that shot and, and everything else. And then when it's all done, we're both sitting on the couch watching this thing and neither of us can say anything. And we just reach across the, the couch and do a high five. And that, and we just sat there in silence and enjoyed the, the moment as you know as the the confetti is falling down around around uh, Staples Center and all of that. So, uh, getting to to share that moment will be probably my favorite and and will probably always be my favorite just because it was it was cool to to do that with my dad. Yeah, I don't know how mad I can get about that given how heartwarming it was. Damn it, Trevor! <laughs> <laughs> uh, glad somebody enjoyed that though um yeah yeah sorry i had to go with that one. <laughs> oh yeah it's fine i get it i get it i get it gotta stick it to me in one and one way or the other um so what is <laughs> this could be this could be from any time really uh what's if you have one i should say what's the your favorite or the best story that you feel like you've ever written any personal favorites so i wrote a story um gosh it's about three years ago now, maybe four. Um, that was probably about three years ago. I, I wrote a story called the Kobe Bryant generation. And mm. I wrote it all about how there's a whole population of Lakers fans and myself included in this, who really grew up alongside Kobe. And as Kobe was having all these struggles in the NBA early and then kind of grew and matured as a person and then becomes a father, like we were all experiencing similar milestones in our lives that kind of paralleled what was going on and how, and this was before Kobe uh, unfortunately passed. Um, and, and, and how he was that, that constant, how through turmoil in all of our lives and all of that, all of us would constantly turn to, to Lakers basketball and, and get to see Kobe out there performing on a nightly basis and see him developing just as we were and how it created this bond and this connection. And it's part of why Lakers fans over two decades of watching Kobe were so passionate about him. And so, that piece was really well received. Sometimes when you're writing something, you just, you can feel it. Everything kind of comes together. And that was certainly one of those. So that remains my, my favorite one. Today. Okay. So quick follow-up on that. What is your favorite Kobe Bryant memory? Uh, my favorite Kobe Bryant memory is bittersweet because it's, it's his final game. It's the 60 point performance. Um, and that's probably my second favorite, favorite thing that I've written is a piece I wrote about that, but I don't think I've ever seen, an athlete do what he did that night. And I know it was a meaningless game at the very end of the season, but the drop 60 and the level of exhaustion that we saw from him and in the weeks leading up, you know, the, the team met, the team docs were, were basically piecing him together with whatever they could find. I mean, it, he might as well be duct taped together at that point. He, he was falling apart. 
And so to see him go out there and drop 60 and give everything he had, that was, that was incredible. I remember thinking at the moment that I don't think we've ever seen an athlete give everything like that. Like it felt like he poured out every ounce of basketball he had left in him that night in the Staples center and gave that to the crowd as a, as a parting gift. And it still gives me chills talking about it. I couldn't believe what we were watching happen. And so that's, that's probably uh, will always be one of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, it's legitimately unbelievable. You know, nobody in Los Angeles with a Hollywood script on their name could possibly have written a better ending for the Kobe Bryant career arc. That was uh, quite remarkable. I remember I, where I was when I watched it too. And I just got chills just hearing you talk about it, man. I mean, you know, Boston Celtics, <laughs> Los Angeles, Lakers rivalry aside, I mean, you know, Kobe's Kobe. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so finally, last couple of questions here. What's something about this job that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand? Um, so a lot of people think it's it's just oh you know you're you get paid to, to sit around and watch and watch basketball, um, and there's there's a lot more to it. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of things going on. A lot of you know hey sorry honey I've got to go. And, you know this the Lakers just made this trade. I've got to go cover this, and I'm and then I'm I'm gone for the next four or five hours or, or whatever it is. So um, it's there's a lot of flexibility to it as well. But it, at the same time, it's it can be all consuming and it can be uh, it can be a challenge to to find time for other things in your life too and to and to make that all work. So I think a lot of people when they when they look at it they think oh that must be be so much fun and it is but it's still it's still a job and it's still a lot of work and it doesn't feel like as much work when you love what you do but you still got to put in the effort you don't get to just it's not like you just flip on a switch and start recording or whatever and and just run with it and everything works out fine it's a it's a lot of behind the scenes work. Yep, definitely. So much goes on behind the scenes that nobody knows. It's very similar sentiment to what others I've talked about this echo. Uh, and finally, what's something that you wish you knew about this job back when you were just starting out writing your blog? So I wish I had known how important networking is. I mean, that's that's everything in this. And I've over the years, I've developed a number of different contacts, but I'm still by far the, uh, you know, not the best at networking or anything. And it is so, so, so critical. Um, so that's something that I'm constantly working at and, and trying to get better at. But it's really important to make contacts with with the right people when you're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. This this industry really is all about networking and taking advantage of the opportunity when the time strikes. And it certainly seems like into your particular situation. <laughs> You got the latter part down pat, that's for sure. Well, I, I like to I like to think so. We'll see. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this all all works out. This big move and everything. But um, yeah, right right now I'm loving it. So hopefully, uh, hopefully I did the right thing there. Yeah, well, we will see, and you will have not a spare second really in the next six or so months with all the Lakers basketball that'll be going on. Very exciting time. But Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today and your honest and insightful answers. I really had an enjoyable conversation with you. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you having me on, and, uh, and I enjoyed this as well. Of course. Hopefully we can uh, chat again about a Lakers-Celtics finals preview come September. How does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds great to me. Let's, uh, let's do it. All right, let's plan on it then. And as always, thank you, listener, for tuning in. I am your host, Liam McEwen. Until next time.